Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. All right. Um, we are doing something that I know you thought would never happen. Um, we're, we're going to close out our study on the Sermon on the Mount today. Okay? I told you I thought there was going to be one more. There, there was one more, and this is it. Um, now, it, interestingly... Uh, I have said this to uh, several of you. It feels like every time I get done with a message, that that next week, there's so much more about that section of the Sermon on the Mount that the Lord shows me. And I feel like I could start over and would not say anything that I said before. Just about through the whole, you know, take 26 more weeks. But we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to tie a knot and a bow in this today. And um, so I, I hope you'll just we'll kind of reflect a little bit uh, on that. Yesterday, um, I did a funeral for my brother-in-law, who I was very, very good friends with in high school. Uh, We we played football together, knew each other really well. Um, I finally figured out why he was hanging at my house. It wasn't for me. He he had a thing for my sister, apparently. And and so anyway, uh, his name's Rick, and uh, his mom passed, and uh, they asked me if I would if I would do the funeral, and I, I, you know, I was honored to do that, so I did. And there were a couple other guys there that uh, I had played football with, and so you know we, you know, rehashed the glory days kind of thing, and um, talked a little bit about some of that. And, and you know, I was thinking a little bit about uh, about that because my I, I played football up until my senior year in high school, and I did not play my senior year. I had been selected to do something else, and. Um, I, so I, I didn't feel like I could do both things. And so I, I didn't play my senior year. And there was a huge difference in having been a participant on the field and part of the crowd in the stands. There, were, there was a night and day difference. And I'll just tell you, you know, I was pretty sick most of the, <laughs> that, that season going to the games. You know, I got to where I didn't want to go, but I did. But there was just a big difference between being engaged... And just being in the crowd. And interestingly, the gospel writer Matthew points out that dynamic in very distinct ways throughout the entire gospel that God inspired him to write. And it shows up in the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in some very, very unique ways. See, a, a crowd, they just kind of watch. Participants I- engage. Crowds can be, like, amazed for, you know, for a moment or or two. But a participant is somebody who they commit themselves to a different way of living. And so Matthew points something out. I want to go back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, even before Jesus began the sermon. Jump back to the uh, Matthew chapter 4, the last verse there that leads us into Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew records this, he says, and great crowds followed him, being Jesus, from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. 
Matthew wants you to see that there are two distinct groups of people there that day. There, there is the crowd, you know, this, Jesus has this audience, and it's made up of the crowds, and it's made up of disciples. Now, a lot of times in Scripture, you'll see different distinctions. You'll, you'll see, you know, phrases like uh, male or female, Jew or Greek, you know, slave or free. Those kinds of statements are made in Scripture to provide, you know, distinctions of people. Distinctions like that didn't matter much to, to Jesus. But here's one that did. The crowds and the disciples. Matthew actually mentions, uses the word crowds uh, 49 times in the Gospel of Matthew, depending on which translation you search, you know. The crowds come to hear Jesus' teaching. They come to bring sick friends to receive healing. Sometimes they're amazed at what Jesus says and does. The crowds have, you know, honorary titles for Jesus. They would call him a prophet or, or, or a rabbi. You know, they, they're, they're present with Jesus, but usually just sporadically. Usually kind of based on their, their circumstances. They come to Jesus when they have, have a need. They recognize that he's unique, but they just kind of drift in and out based on their circumstances. You know, on, some of you know this, that on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before for Easter, you know, they were so excited, they were thinking Jesus was going to fulfill their great desire to overthrow Rome and set himself up as king, that when Jesus starts into Jerusalem, they start screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, they were laying their, their robes down for Jesus to ride on, on a donkey across their robes and palm branches and all this thing. And five days later, five days later on Friday, they're crying out something else. What are they crying out? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crowds, crowds can be a little wishy-washy. Matthew also mentions disciples 65 times. A disciple is somebody who was at one time primarily identified as part of the crowd. But somewhere along the way, Jesus kind of got under their skin. Just kind of got under their skin. And they, they, can't, they can't shake it loose. They have to be around him all the time. You know, they're not satisfied just to hear what he says. They have to do what, what he asks. And, and so that they want to be able to see what he sees. And they want to be able to live like he lives. That's a disciple. Now, please hear me say this. Jesus loved the crowds. He, he loved the crowds. He, he's crazy uh, about the crowds. They, they did something deep to his heart, not because he needed their attention. Had nothing to do with that. He didn't need their attention, but because in, in each individual in the crowd, he saw dignity and worth and, and value, and he saw their need. Listen to how Matthew describes Jesus being impacted by the crowd. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That was Jesus' heart for the crowd. Jesus understood that most people in his day were living as part of the crowd. And friends, that remains true in our day. And you and I need to determine where are we? Are we, are we part of the crowd or are we disciples of Jesus? And so I want to give you kind of some, you know, kind of some discerning questions to maybe ask to help you see where you're at. Here's one. Am I just living as part of the crowd? Am I just kind of going along with the, the, the world? Or have I committed myself to something else, something different? Have I truly committed myself? 
Here's another question. What kind of person am I seeking to become? What kind of person am I, am I aiming at? Here's another one. How seriously do I try to assess my moral and spiritual character? Are you doing an assessment? Do you have people in your life that, that help you, that will speak truth to you? Another one, what, what are you using as the foundation for the basis of making decisions in life? What, what kind of is your, your authority on how you'll spend your time or your money or the relationships that you'll give yourself over to or how you express your sexuality? What do you fill your mind with? Mostly, what are you exposing your, 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 your mind to? What, what people are you allowing to have significant influence over your life? Who are they? What, what should you do when you wrong somebody? How should you go back to them? See, the way of the crowd is just to kind of drift through those things. Sometimes the crowd, you know, the crowd might compare themselves to one another, but it usually doesn't bring about change. Not long ago, I read about um, something that uh, electric cooperatives had tried to to do to help change the the amount of power consumption their consumers were engaged with. They thought, we'll just get them to compare. So some electric cooperatives were sending notes in their bills, their monthly bills to people that read something like this. 85% of people with a home like yours use less energy than you. You energy-sucking pigs. No, it didn't say that. It it didn't say that. Just made that up. But they were trying to get them to compare, and it really didn't make make that big a difference. You know, it just just didn't. See, the default mode of humans is to just kind of drift with the crowd. Jesus described it as sheep without a shepherd. And we saw in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says that's kind of the broad road. It's the road kind of the world takes. He calls it, uh, ultimately, it'll be like a house built on the sand. It's going to crash. You remember that? The end of the sermon, basically. Look back with me at, at Matthew chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Jesus said, but everyone who hears these words of mine does not put them into practice. Is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came down. The streams rose. The winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell with a great crash. And we took a whole Sunday and we talked about those, those two verses. It was a catastrophic fall when it finally came about. But then we come to the last two verses in Matthew chapter 7. They're not really part of the sermon. They're what happens next. You get to Jesus' spoken what we just read. This is what happens next. Verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Matthew, again, deliberately is making this distinction, pointing out the crowds and pointing to disciples. And this has a lot to do with you and and with me. See, reading this sermon or hearing these words, sitting under Jesus' teaching leads to this grand invitation If you take seriously the words that Jesus gave in this great Sermon on the Mount, it leads to a crossroads in life. What will I do with what he says? Will I trust him and his teaching? Will I trust that he's right? 
Will I change my life? Will I go through the narrow gate and engage in obedience? Will I identify with following this man? Will I build my life on the foundation of his teachings? Will I step into this great kingdom that he's offered me to be a part of or not? It will be decision time. See, the crowds don't. Disciples step in. We read a moment ago that both the crowds and the disciples, they were amazed at Jesus' authority. In, in that day, the teaching style of, of rabbis, the rabbinical style of that day, was you would always kind of quote a rabbi who kind of came before you. You probably, it was your mentor or something like that. And in, in a lot of uh, kind of Jewish school, shades of Judaism, that's still true today. It's a teaching style. And your authority really rested in the, the generation before you. You know, you'll, you, your authority would be, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this. Jesus did not do that. Jesus did not once refer to what another rabbi said. He never did. Jesus would just walk up and say, truly, truly, I say to you, and then he would just, as the kids say, he would drop a truth bomb. Boom! And you'd have to figure out, what am I going to do with this? How, how am I going to deal with this? And what he was doing was he was just kind of putting words to reality. What, what was really going on in life. Jesus would just paint this real living picture of reality with his words and it would ring true. And here's why. Because the authority of Jesus was rooted in reality. The way the world really works, the way God intended it to work, and how we need to live in the midst of that. Now, that, that, that word, reality, this connection with reality, really describes this uh, authority. And you know this, our culture is allergic to authority these days. Our culture, our, our world is just kind of averse to anything to do with authority. We forget that Jesus' authority was not like the world's authority. It wasn't rooted in an org chart. It wasn't part of some hierarchical system. It, it, not, nothing oppressive or anything. It, it wasn't. Jesus' authority was rooted in reality. Here's the other thing. The authority of Jesus was also rooted in the truth of his words. The truth of his words. His words were true. And one more thing that his authority was rooted in. The authority of Jesus was rooted in the truth of his life. See, his, his life, he lived what he said. His life reflected his words. There was integrity. There was integration. Jesus did not say one thing and do something else. There was no hypocrisy or duplicity or narcissism or egotism in Jesus. I love the way Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases verse 29 of Matthew 7. He, he, he writes these words. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. Quite a contrast to their religious teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. Friends, that's the most potent kind of spiritual authority is this integration of reality in your life with your words. And it has nothing to do with who you studied under, what university you went through, what advanced degrees you might have, 
who says what about you when you stand up, you know, maybe to say something. Whether you're known or unknown, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're on an org chart or in some hierarchical system or not, real spiritual authority has nothing to do with those. Do you speak truth and it corresponds to reality and does it correspond to your own life? That's spiritual authority. Uh, that kind of authority has a weight to it and Jesus had that weight and everybody that met Jesus saw that, that he was more than just a rabbi. He was bigger than any Hebrew sage or Greek philosopher. He wasn't just a conduit through which truth ran through. He was the source of truth itself. Jesus said in, in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, I know there's a lot, a lot of worldviews and philosophies and religions out there that say, you know, something like all roads lead up the same mountain to the same place. Jesus says no. He was either a liar or a lunatic, or he is the Lord. And you got to decide which one. That's just the truth. He, he is the source of truth. And as you go through the, the Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of easy to miss it, but Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, makes some very blatant claims that he is the embodiment of God himself in the flesh, that, that he literally is the creator and a creation, a human being in the same place, God and humanity in, in, in the same body. But right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he drives some of these things home, making all kinds of claims about, about being God. He claims that he's the gate and that through his teaching, you can enter into life ever after. He claims that on the day of judgment, that great day, that people are going to say to him, Lord, Lord. Look at it with me. Remember this back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is who is in heaven. That word for Lord is translated from the Greek word kurios, which literally means God. Literally means God. So Jesus was saying that on the day of judgment, there are going to be people who are going to say, Kurios, Kurios, Lord, Lord. We did these things for you. Jesus goes on in that same claim to claim that, that people who don't know him, they're going to be sent away. And that, that is a demonstration, if you would, of ultimate judgment. You're sent away from the presence of God. You're no longer in relationship with him. Jesus goes on to claim that people are going to do this. They're going to work miracles in his name. They're going to cast out demons in his name. They're going to speak prophecy in his name. Not God's name, but his name. Jesus is blatantly in the Sermon on the Mount. He has this audacity in his teaching to, to point out that he is, he is God in the flesh. That's why his teaching has authority. And so Jesus would just say, you need to build your life on the foundation of what I am saying. No rabbi had ever said that before. They might point back to, you know, the Torah and say, you know, you need to build your life uh, on the Torah. The, the Torah is important. Some might even be bold enough to say, hey, my understanding of the Torah is really what you need to kind of build your life on, the way I see the Torah. But no, no, no rabbi would have ever said, you need to build your life on my teachings. 
That would have been blasphemy. That would have been, if not blasphemy, they'd have thought, you know, this is delusional megalomania. This guy's, he's off his rocker. Unless, unless you really were the creator. Unless God and humanity were inhabiting the same body. Unless your authority was truly rooted in the fact that you were the one who created the cosmos. That you were the one who had made the human body and the human psyche and you knew better than anybody else how human flourishing and thriving happens best. This was the reality of Jesus' authority. And people would step out of the crowd, some would, to follow him, to be discipled to him because they saw this in Jesus. And this really brings us to kind of what I would call the big idea for the day, and it's simply this. With Jesus, there is a huge difference between just staying in the crowd and becoming his disciple. There's a big difference, folks. Just staying in the crowd and becoming... See, the crowds and disciples fundamentally experience Jesus very differently. Let me just point out a couple real, real kind of quickly here. Crowds, they're amazed at what Jesus says to them. They're just, oh, man, you hear what he said? Here's what really amazes disciples. Disciples are amazed at what Jesus does in them. They're amazed at what he says, too, but they're, they're more amazed at what Jesus does in them. Here's the second difference. Crowds are amazed when they look at Jesus' life. They were just amazed at the way he lived, the way he loved, the way he accepted. Disciples are amazed. They were amazed at that too. But they're more amazed when they look at their life being altered by Jesus' words and teaching. They're, that's what they're most amazed by is how Jesus is changing and transforming them. See, the disciples saw their lives altered primarily because of the presence of Jesus and his work and grace activating in their lives. They're, they're amazed at their new identity. They're amazed that they have new purpose in life. They're amazed at the new community of, of other believers that they share, and they're amazed at their growth. Friends, see, Jesus, he had this grand invitation, and it is for us today, and it is that we would leave the crowds to become his disciple, and, and know the amazement that only a disciple can know. Now, for most of us in this room, it may be that what we, you, most of us in this room have made a decision at some point to leave the crowd to become a disciple. Maybe not everybody yet, but maybe for most of us in this room, maybe what we have done is we've drifted back to the crowd, and we need to take another step back out of the crowd and recommit to discipleship. So this, in this talk, that I, I, the time that I have left, I want us to look at some of the promises that are only promises for disciples. This book, God's Word, is filled with thousands of promises. Promise after promise after promise. Most of them, I would guess 99% of them, are for disciples. There's really only one promise that's for the crowds. Now, it's summed up in several places. It's not going to come up on the screen, but in Romans chapter 10, verses 10 through 13, uh, Paul writes these words. He says, it's by believing in your heart that you were made right with God, and it's by confessing with your mouth 
that you are saved. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a promise for everyone in the world. Anyone who calls in the name of the Lord, who repents of sin, who puts their trust in Jesus, will be saved. All of the other promises are for followers, for disciples, not for the crowd. The great promises are for, for God's people. And they need to be recaptured by those of us who follow Jesus, those disciples. The, the, these promises for us should be vividly in front of us constantly. They should be compelling us, drawing us forward in life. And if, we're, if we truly desire to be discipled to Jesus, to live in the kingdom that he offers. See, these promises aren't, aren't just about, here are tricky ways to get into heaven. That's not what the promises are mostly about. They're mostly about life right now. What life is like in the here and now. But let me give you one of them. This came from one of the early adopters of following Jesus. His name was Peter. Many of you know Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Peter writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. His divine power, speaking about God, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us, please bear attention to this, he has given us his very great and precious promise, promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. So just think about that last, that last sentence for a minute, the last part of that sentence. That you, that, that, that you, little old you, could participate in the divine nature. Wouldn't that look great on your resume? You know, to, to, to have that, that you will participate in, in, in the divine nature, that you will regularly interact with the God of all creation, with the joy that Jesus has in the Father and the Father has in His Son, that, that, those things that lie at the heart of God, that you'll be part of serving His great gospel project on the planet, that you'll be guided by His immense wisdom, that you'll, you'll be comforted by His constant presence. That's what it means to experience those very great and precious promises. You know, even the most ambitious person in this room isn't as ambitious as God's heart is for you. You know, most people in the room, your ambition might be to be a CEO or, you know, a VP or, you know, a PhD or, or something like that. And First Peter, Peter writes here that God is extending to you that you could put on the end of your name, DNP. Divine nature participant. That's what God sees you as. Put on the end of your name, on your business card. Friends, it doesn't require any money. It doesn't require any degrees. It doesn't require any, you know, lots of contacts and social media. It doesn't require talent or a high IQ. It's part of the good news of life in the kingdom of God. And we've taken 26 Sundays now and devoted them to, to walking through that. And we learned from Jesus. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, we just sang it. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are, are the weak. For if they desire to, 
If they want to come into the kingdom of God, they can participate in this divine nature. And Peter says, it comes to us through these very great and precious promises. Not just regular old promises. Not just precious promises. Not just great precious promises, but what? Very great and precious promises. And I I hope you notice that that statement by Peter that we just read actually has a very precious, great promise in it that his divine power has already given us everything we need for a godly life. Not some of what you need, everything that we need. Not, not, not for the American dream. You know, not, not, not so that, you know, you can be rich, but for a godly life so that you can experience the God-pleasing, God-guided, God-empowered life. That's what Peter says we have. So in the time that we have left, I want to just move through some of what, for me, are some of the greatest promises for experiencing life with God that we find in the Scriptures. These are, these are promises from Jesus that just, that just awaken my soul when I give myself over to them. And I'm just going to read them and let them hang for a minute. I'm not going to spend time explaining them. And I've already asked and prayed that the Holy Spirit will bring to you the one you need today or the two you need today the most. That they'll just, it will fall on you that way. And after we've done that, I'm going to go back on the other side and I'm just going to restate them in, in the way that I experienced them in the language that I think of today. And I'm going to do that so that we can see that, that those, those statements fit into a disciple's life in the here and now. And so I'm going to invite you to listen to these and experience these very great and precious promises under the Holy Spirit's leadership and, and if, that you might experience them in a prayerful manner. So let's pray. Jesus, we're coming to some of your very great and precious promises. And I just pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that they will wash over us in a fresh way this day, giving us what we need from you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness or unrighteousness. We have the mind of Christ. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Be strong and courageous. Do not, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. With God, all things are possible. Where the Spirit of the Lord is present, there is freedom. And we, you and me, who reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These are just a smattering of the very great and precious promises of God. Now, I'm just going to go back over them in the same order that I read them to you. And I'm just going to kind of state them in words the way that I would probably say them. Just to put them in our, our world. Our unsatisfied desires will cease to dominate us. Hurry and worry can begin to drop away. we will begin to recognize and publicly confess our spiritual inadequacy with growing abandon, and we'll cheer one another on to do the same thing. A new inspiration will begin to guide our thought life. Shame and judgmentalism will gradually lose their grip on us. We'll find ourselves making better decisions than we've ever made before. Our weaknesses no longer torment us, for we, we find a power greater than ourselves working right in the middle of them. We find we're growing less easily irritated or discouraged. These are those promises in modern language. Money worries. Selfishness begin to fade while generosity begins to grow. Our sense of identity and usefulness will begin to, to deepen. 
we finally begin becoming the people that our mothers always told us we could be. We will increasingly be filled with joyful dependence on Jesus who is becoming more and more our friend. Now, I pray that those promises don't seem unattainable to you because they're not. They're the very precious promises of God for his disciples. Now, there are some people in our church, people I've watched very closely who have experienced these promises, these very great and precious promises, deeper than I have. Some of you, I've watched you and just seen you doing that, but I have tasted them. I have a taste of the fulfillment of these. This, this recent season in my life has brought some new challenges. Some of them are a little more weighty. Some of them bringing a little extra stressors. I, I keep waiting on my wife to say amen in a moment. But, um, and I'm not going into details about them. And many of you are walking through seasons far worse than, than me, heavier pressures than than I, but I was in our sunroom. Uh, that's kind of my morning place with the Lord and, uh, about two weeks ago. And um, as I was kind of praying through some of these challenges, these are the words that just kind of came into my mind. Joe, I'm going to give you the daily bread, I promised you. And I thought about the prayer that Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount to pray for God, give us this day our daily bread. And I I stopped there for a moment. And the next thought that came into my mind, Joe, I'm going to give you today what you need. And if I don't give it to you, you don't need it. But you can still abide in me. I am still with you. I will give you today what you need for today. Now, I don't know what your life is ever like from time to time when i do this when i when i'm living more as the crowd than as a disciple i will obsess over a challenge i'm facing and when i uh, obsess over that there's like a, a geiger counter in my soul that starts ticking loud you know when i start living in the worst case scenario and i can feel it in my body there's this unease this dis-ease that starts to set into my soul. But when I, when, I, when I finally bring my mind back to focus successfully on God and on these very great and precious promises, the Geiger counter relaxes. It, it, it loosens up. When I think about the reality that He is with me and that He has promised that He is helping me to become the person that I need to be to face these challenges and circumstances. That whenever my will is surrendered to him, he's going to give me the strength that I need in that moment. And when I do that, I'm not kidding, something physical actually happens in my body. And I know it's the peace of God and his promises. You know, our bodies are like a Geiger counter in our souls for experiencing that. So we'll you know, the crowd gives themselves over, and I sometimes follow the crowd. I give myself over to that worst-case scenario instead of giving myself over to the very great 
and precious promises of God. But when I do, things change. One of the great promises is found in Isaiah chapter 26. It says this about God. You keep him in perfect peace. You can be kept in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. When my mind is stayed on God and those very precious promises, Geiger counter rests. Not a lot of ticking. It, it, I, I find myself at rest. And friends, it's just true. And so we, we decide, are we going to stay in the crowd? Or are we going to step out and, and, and be, be his disciple? You know? The, the crowd looks at, you know, money, thinking it makes promises to us. The cr- crowd, we, we think success makes promises to us. We think sometimes our, you know, if we could really have great health, that'll make a promise to us. That security, what, what, what promises, do those things keep their promises? They fail us. See, one thing for certain, Jesus told us this, we're all going to build our life on something. Maybe it's that list of things that I just named. We're all going to build our existence on some foundation. Some, everybody builds our house on, on something. Even if you just kind of drift into it, you're still building it on something. But friends, please hear me say this. Nobody and nothing in this world has ever made the promises that Jesus makes to his disciples. Nobody or nothing makes those promises. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life. Have it full on, man. Have it abundantly. Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things have I spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full or complete. You can have the joy of Jesus in you. John 7, 38, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of our hearts. John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are the promises of Jesus. They're already being fulfilled in us. Sometimes quickly, some of you have experienced the promise of healing in your life like that. Some of you have experienced some of the promise of God happen very quickly. A provision, a protection, just out of the blue. But mostly the promises of God are fulfilled slowly over a period of time. But they will always materialize if we are walking towards them as his disciples, walking away from the crowd. So here's today's big kind of closing question. Will you step out of the crowd in order to live out of his promises? You can't stay in both. You can't stay in the crowd and live out his promises. Those promises aren't for crowd life. Crowds are just spectators. They're not fully engaged and not abandoned. Some of you know that um, when I was in high school and college that I was a lifeguard and a uh, swim team coach and I taught swimming lessons. And when you taught beginner swimming lessons, one of the things that you could begin to could tell is how a, a kid was going to do. And you could, you know, if you did it long enough, you could tell pretty early. One of those defining moments where you could know if a child was going to succeed in kind of this swimming endeavor was if they would trust the teacher enough 
to jump off the side of the pool onto their arm. If they would just take that. Have you ever seen kids standing on the side of a pool going to jump to mom or dad or something like that? You know, and, they're, and they back up, and then they come back, you know? I could tell pretty quickly who, would, who was going to succeed and, and really maybe take some steps towards beginning swimming based on would they jump to my arm, would they trust me? Because if they would jump into the water, they would start to experience the joy of life in the pool. And they could start maybe learning to swim, the things that would follow up. But if they wouldn't take that leap, they'd never experience the fullness of joy of learning to swim. Friends, the step out of the crowd to be a disciple is a lot like that. And what we read from Peter a moment ago about those very precious promises, those very great and precious promises, they come to people who will take that leap, who will say to Jesus, I'm in following you. Jesus, here, here I come. And if you go back and you look at that passage from 1 Peter, one of the things that you will see is that what comes along with that is great joy, the, the joy of the Lord. Now, here's another promise because I know it's scary to take that jump. You can, it's not going to come up on the screen. You can go home and read it later. It's a one-chapter book in the Bible. It's the book of Jude. It's the next to the last verse, verse 24. I want to read it to you. Jude, verse 24. God can guard you so that you don't fall when you jump. God can guard you so that you don't fall so that you can be full of joy as you stand in his glorious presence without fault. He can keep you from falling when you take that jump. But you got to come out of the crowd or maybe, maybe you got to come back out of the crowd today. And Jesus is ready and he will guard you so that you don't fall. He's ready to give you his joy and his peace in this crazy, broken world. But the question is, will you surrender to that? Will you surrender believing that he will, you jump, he'll keep you from falling, you're not going to drown, he will be with you, and then you will have open to you all of those very great and precious promises that we read plus hundreds more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come in this moment. We come... Lord, each of us showing up with different burdens, each of us with different challenges. Some of us, God, maybe we've been full on this week as disciples. Some of us may have taken steps back into the crowd, and you're calling us back out to live in your very great and precious promises. And so we come to that moment of decision. Will we... Will we jump to you, Jesus? Will we take that step out of the crowd to be a disciple, to experience those very great and precious promises? Lord, a word for that is surrender. Will we just surrender to you? Will we surrender in this moment our fears, our hesitations? Will, will we surrender thinking we know a better way? Will we surrender? The, will, we, will we repent? of those things and when we, when we jump to you to be your disciples.
maybe this morning the decision you need to make is to, to say, Jesus, I've surrendered before, but I surrender all once again. All to you, Jesus. All to you. Surrendered all to you because I want to live in your kingdom as your disciple experiencing the fullness of your very great and precious promises breathing in my life. Jesus, move in our hearts and minds the way that you need to now. We want you to have unhindered sway. It's in your name we pray.